Abram from the city of Ur and the Chaldeans. When he was 75 years old, he heard God speak to him in such a profound way that it literally changed the course of his life. God said, I want you to leave your home, leave your kinfolk, leave your family, and go to a land that I will show you. And God promised him two specific things. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will give you land. I will make you the father of a family that is as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And he said, I'll give you land occupied. When we come to Genesis 15, where we were last Sunday, it's been right about 10 years since he left Ur the Chaldees. And God said that you and Sarah are going to have a child. And they don't have a child yet. Remember last Sunday morning, as we looked at the first six verses, God reiterated the promise. And in fact, he said to him, you are going to have a child and it will be of your DNA. Abram was thinking, I'm going to have to make my chief steward in my house my heir and it'll all come through him. But God said, no, it's going to come through you. You will have a son. And as we looked at those verses, we said that verse 6 is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. And verse 6 says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. This verse appears at least three more times in Scripture, and we talked about that lesson, and I'm not going to re-preach that, that lesson. But we come to this conclusion. It's our faith in Jesus Christ and his grace that saves us. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot buy your salvation. You cannot be good enough for God to say, that's a good person, I'll take him to heaven. It's a matter of putting my faith in Jesus Christ. And when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I prove I put my faith in Jesus Christ by doing what Jesus Christ asked me to do. Faith without works is useless. James said it's dead which means pretty soon it stinks. It's no good. So when I put my faith in Jesus, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're going to pick up the ongoing conversation between God and Abram in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 7. And he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The first note for those of you filling in the notes that are inside the bulletin this morning, I am the Lord who brought you out. That phrase carries great significance. Those words were spoken numerous times to Abram's offspring in the days of Moses. Over and over, you're going to read it in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I am the Lord who brought you out. I am the Lord who brought Abram from Ur. I am the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt. And then I backed up the next note. I am, I wanted you to write this. I am the Lord. And notice it's all in caps. I am the Lord, which means it is the most holy name to the Jewish people for the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. The I am that I am, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. I'm the self-existent one. I'm the one who causes things to be. The two most formative events in the history of the Jewish people were based on God's sovereign act of salvation. I am the Lord who brought you out. He said that to Abram. He said that to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. I am the Lord who brought you out. The next note is this, I am the Lord to give you this land to possess. To give you this land to possess. Here's the subtext to me. And if you don't know what subtext is, I've shared before in theater, we learned that the lines have a subtext. What's the motivation behind all of this? Here the subtext, God is saying something to this, Abram, my sovereignty is the guarantee of the promise I've made to you. I am the Lord. There is nothing that is going to keep my promise from coming to pass. I've said it. I will perform it. Another passage of Scripture, God said, I'm not a man that I should lie, neither the son of man that I should repent. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. I have brought you out. I will give you this land. I will give you a son. So in these first few verses of Genesis 15, God has repeated the promise of a great number of people, possession of land for that great number of people to dwell in. So I am the Lord means you can count on what I say coming to pass. You can count on what I say coming to pass. 
prophet Isaiah wrote, quoting God, my word will not return void, but will accomplish that what I've sent it to do. Genesis 15, 8. Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God says, I'm your shield, I'm your great reward. And he said, I have no children. So the father lets him know in no uncertain terms that he's going to have a child. Now in verse 7, I'm going to give you this land. And he said, I believe it, but help my unbelief. You ever been there? I believe it, but help my unbelief. How am I to know that I'm going to possess it? How am I going to know? How can I grab onto something that's going to give me the security that I can declare, I know that I know that I know? In answer to Abram's question, God gave him a divine order, and Abram obeyed. God gave him a divine order, told him to get these animals. I'll read that in a moment. Now, I did not put what I'm about to say in your notes anywhere because that's my opinion. And by that I'm saying I can't tell you it's absolutely true all the time, like an axiom in math. But it's one of these things that I've observed over the years in my life and in the lives of those around me. Sometimes we do not get the answer to our doubts because we do not act upon what we already know God wants us to do. Let me repeat that. Sometimes we don't get the answer to our doubts because we have not taken action on what we know that God already wants us to do. God gave him a command And he went and he did exactly what God told him to do. Your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth, depends upon doing what God's told me to do one step at a time. Most of us would prefer, tell me what the end is, God. Give me all 16 steps. But usually God gives us one step at a time. He told him, verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, what I find interesting in the context, God says, bring me these five animals. And Abram seems to know why, what, and how. He doesn't ask him, okay, what do you want me to do with it? It would appear that this ceremony was something that had taken place in ancient times and even in the pagan cultures of the day. Abram understood that God was saying, We are going to cut a covenant. We are going to cut a covenant. There's actually going to be some blood shed in cutting this covenant, not human blood, 
but the blood of these animals. I would have really liked to bring the five animals and give you the visual. And I say that because I want you to get that visual in your mind. He goes and he finds the three-year-old heifer, the three-year-old nanny goat, and the three-year-old ram. And he puts them to sleep forever. He kills them. And then he divides them right down the backbone and splits them. And he lays one half on one side of a path and one half on the other side. And he's got the heifer, the nanny, the ram. The birds are pretty small, so he puts the turtle dove on one side and he puts the dove on the other side. What happens next is that the two individuals making a covenant will walk between these animals that have been slain and they're making promises about something to each other. And the promise is sealed by this declaration. May I be as these animals if I break my vow, if I break my promise, cross my heart and hope to die. But they take it a step further than what we did as kids. The animal may, I'm gonna, we're going to make this promise. They didn't go get a notary to sign it. They didn't have, they just had this ceremony they went through. God says, go bring me those animals and cut them. Now, I want you to see that this is not the only place that this has taken place. Hundreds of years later, Jeremiah, God speaking to um, the leaders in, in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 34, 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and his neighbor, Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword. Now, what God had told them to do was to let all the slaves go, to set slaves free. And they said they were going to do it, but they didn't really do it. And so God has taken him to task here. So I proclaim you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a whore to all the kings of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will make them like the calf they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Jude, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. God said, you guys made a vow, you walked through there, and you did not keep it, so I'm going to allow pestilence, I'm going to allow enemies to come and make you like that dead calf. Making a promise. If I break that promise, may I be like the severed animals. 
So the animals on one side of the path, they represent Abram's children. Represents Abram's children. The animals on the other side of the path represent God. That's the way those things went. I remind you of the question Abram asked. How do I know that I'm going to possess the land? So God gives him this very vivid picture of a covenant. I'm making this covenant. I'm confirming with you what I've been telling you for the last 10 years, that you're going to be the father of a great nation, and I'm going to give your children this land. So the scene is set. Abram has placed the carcass in proper place. Sacrifices that represent the promises that God made to Abraham, and those will come after him. So I want you to see this. The animals also represents God's promise to Abraham. The promise, the covenant. Now, Abram waits for instructions. He waits for God to say, okay, we're going to walk through. There's an application point right here. Protect the promises God has given to you. Protect the promises God has given to you. Where do you get that? Verse 11, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Birds of prey, vultures, ravens, crows, they have a way of finding bodies of dead animals and moving in for a free meal. So there's literally a physical thing that Abram's doing as he's waiting in God. He's making sure that the vultures or the ravens who are circling do not land on the emblems of this covenant. He's protecting the sanctity of the sacrifice. I believe there's a spiritual lesson for us to glean from this. Uh, I see somewhat of a parallel when Jesus was talking in, in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's Matthew 13, and he's talking about the sower goes to sow seed. And some of the seed fell on the path. And he said that seed that fell on the path is like someone who hears the word and doesn't understand it. The evil one, who's that? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. I think about Paul writing to the church in Galatia. In chapter 3 of Galatians begins this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Someone had infiltrated the church with a false teaching that in order for them to be Christians, they had to first be Jews in terms of all of the rituals that they did in the Old Testament. Paul said You're under the, those people are under the influence of the evil one, the one who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, the one who comes to rob saints of their freedom in Jesus. Now, I suppose I probably should just preach a whole sermon on this one verse. Don't let the vultures 
Hold on to the words. When in doubt, hold on to the words. Choose to believe what the Bible says instead of what your feelings say. No, we sang a few moments ago. I'm a child. I'm chosen. Not forsaken. I'm forgiven. Have you ever sang that song or made that kind of declaration on Sunday? And on Monday, these thoughts began rolling through your mind. No, you're not. You're still the same old sinner you were before you went to church on Sunday. Why do you even bother? You're phony. You're a hypocrite. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. Anybody ever heard those kind of things going on in your head? Or you're all so strong that the preaching's been so good, you don't hear those kind of things? Nobody wants to confess. Have you ever felt like God gave you some kind of promise and it just doesn't seem to happen? It just doesn't seem to happen? It just doesn't seem to happen? Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let the vulture steal your joy, steal your freedom, steal your hope by putting fear and doubt where God planted the word. Amen? Back to the story of Abram. Chapter 15 started out at dark. Remember, he took him out and showed the stars. Evidently, he spent the whole next day preparing the path of covenant because, verse 12 said, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Some of the most significant moments of God's revelation of himself and his kingdom are accompanied by darkness. And that seems counterintuitive when we know that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai and they stood at the the base of Mount Sinai, the scripture tells us that the the clouds came down and settled over that mountain. And, 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 And what I visualized Something like what Vicki and I experienced when we were driving across country and we were in Iowa. And in the afternoon, about, I don't know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, we stopped in a truck stop to have a meal because we were driving a 26-foot truck and a car trailer behind it. So we stopped at truck stops where we could pull in and pull out. When we went in, the sky was blue. And while we were eating, suddenly we see this cloud coming. Seemed like it was coming from the east, I don't know. And it got bigger and blacker. It was June, so daylight saving time. We went outside. When we went outside, it was all the street lights were coming on. Automatic lights were coming on. 
it was dark, but it was, the sun had not yet set because off in the distance to the west, you could still see blue sky. But this cloud came, this darkness came. And lightning, not lightning like here, you know, that kind of lightning they have in the Midwest, I mean, everywhere. And you could see these things, and we just drove as fast as we could drive that big old truck to try to stay ahead of that storm that was coming. I started that because when they went to Mount Sinai, the darkness of the cloud in the middle of the day, lightning and, and, and thunder and an earthquake, it was an eerie moment. The Israelites stood at the base of the mountain and said, Moses, you go talk to God, and then you come and tell us what he said. We are not coming any closer because of the darkness and the lightning. When Jesus was in the process of cutting the new covenant, for three hours in the middle of the day, there was darkness over the whole land. There's an interesting verse in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and, and it's repeated in Psalms 18. You find the same song in both of those chapters that David wrote after he had, had been delivered from all of his enemies. Verse 10, 2 Samuel said this, He bowed the heavens and came down. This is God. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. And you can read on in that chapter. But here's what I take from that. Sometimes God wraps himself in darkness so he can come close and do great things. Sometimes God clothes himself in darkness so he can come close. If God came close in all of his glory, what would happen to us? God told Moses, you can't see my glory and live. So sometimes God comes in the darkness. Remember that when you're going through a season of life where you feel all alone, God has forgotten my name. He's forgotten my address. God must hate me. God closed himself in the darkness to come close and do something great. And he will reveal himself at the right time, the right way, in a way that you will know, yes, God is here. He's been here all the time. So it appears that God put Abram to sleep. And then God spoke to Abram in his sleep. God spoke to him in his sleep in a way that Abram heard it all. Then the Lord said to Abram in verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. If I were a betting man, I would bet that's not the answer that Abram was wanting to hear. 
it'll be four generations before they have this. When God said, I'm giving you this land, it was in the present tense. It was as if God said, it's yours now. But since God doesn't dwell in time like we do, Abram, there's going to be a process before your family inherits this land. Abram, you will always be a sojourner here. You will always be subservient in some way to the people around you. And if you read this story, he had to move several times. The day of acquisition of this promise will not be in your lifetime. Abram and Isaac, they lived in the land. They lived among the Amorites, the Canaanites, and all of those. Jacob did as well until famine came. And then you read the story of how God had provided a way by putting Joseph down in Egypt as a slave and eventually becomes the prime minister in charge of the food. Jacob and his 69 family members moved to Egypt to escape famine and drought. And they are therefore... You know how long they're there for? 430 years. God gave a round figure, four generations, 400 years. God foretold to Abraham that his family would be afflicted for generations. They would be afflicted for generations. If you read Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 2, the people, it says they were afflicted and called on God. They were afflicted. God didn't say to Abraham, it's going to be Egypt, but we know the rest of the story. We know that they were in Egypt for 400 years. And then he said, I will deal with that nation. Did he deal with Egypt? There was the ten plagues. Final one being the death of the firstborn in every household. And then Pharaoh said, go. And they went and they came to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chasing after them. God opens the Red Sea for the Israelites, and when the Egyptians go into the Red Sea, what happened to them? God brought judgments. God foretold Israel will come out of that land, which is Egypt, and they'll be rich. There's an interesting part of that story when you read it, when they make the exodus. God told them at that, that last plague is taking place, or getting ready to take place, go ask your neighbors for Silver and gold and clothes. And lo and behold, they gave them silver and gold and stuff. And they came out with great possessions because of the sovereignty of God moving on the hearts of people. God told Abram, he'll live in peace and live a good time longer than he was right then. In fact, he lived to be 175 years old. Now, I know there must have been some disappointment in his heart, in his mind, when he's not going to see all of this come to fruition. However, Hebrews chapter 11 says he set his sight on a city whose builder, founder, was God himself. He began to live with a heaven point of view rather than an earthly point of view. Seems to me, I read somewhere in this book, set your mind on things above, not on things here. 
Verse 16 is a testimony to the kindness and patience of God. It's a testimony of the kindness and patience of God. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. An interesting statement. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Many times when the Old Testament refers to the Amorites is talking about all the people who lived in Canaan. And when we get to the end of that chapter, it's going to list a whole bunch of those ites that lived there. But when Joshua finally leads the Israelites into the land of Canaan, they're given the command to drive these people out of the land. In fact, in many places, God just says to wipe them off the face of the earth. Men, women, children. Someone not looking at the whole picture finds it difficult to understand how could God do that? When God brings Israel into the land of Canaan to possess it for their inheritance for all the time, it wasn't so much a matter of being a, the aggressor as it was being the agent of God's judgment. You see, the people in Canaan were like the people in Noah's day. Before the flood, remember we talked about the fact that everyone did evil always. That's all that was in their heart. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the, they, they, they all had turned away from God, created their own gods and their own minds. God gave Noah's people 120 years to repent. He gives the Amorites 400 years. But there comes a day when his grace and forbearance comes to an end. Among the gods that the, As the Canaanites, the Amorites believed in, there were three major ones, Asheroth, Anath, and Azurah. The main functions of these three gods that they made up were sex and war. Perhaps more emphasis on sex. When God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai for how the people of Israel were to live as a nation now that they've come out of the land of Egypt, besides the Ten Commandments, he gave them a whole bunch of laws. And Leviticus 18, God speaks very clearly about the sins of sexual relations and things that God calls an abomination, incest, adultery, on and on it goes, bestiality, homosexuality. He said these are an abomination. And the word of the Lord, he said, anyone involved in these practices will be cut off from among their people. We are still living today. We are still here as a nation today because of God's forbearance and God's grace. His patience. Never forget Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When God says to Abram, the iniquity of the Ammonites is not complete, he said, I'm not ready to bring judgment yet. I'm hoping that they'll turn around. However, there's a day of reckoning coming. I don't know if you ever look at the world today. God, how long are you going to let this go on? It gets crazier by the day. The other side of the coin is this. If God would have judged it 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, would you be born again on your way to heaven? Thank God for his forbearance. Thank God for his kindness. Thank God that he's patient. Back to our text. God made a covenant. He made a promise with Abram. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and all the other rites. This covenant took an unexpected turn. I told you earlier that when the covenant was made, both parties would walk through between that carcasses that were laying there. But the Lord put Abram in a deep sleep, and he allows him to see this moment in a dream. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch was the presence of God himself. It was the presence of God himself. Remember when Moses met God? What was it? There was a bush on fire that was not being consumed. Another passage in Exodus. The Lord descended on the mountain in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. This covenant was a lot like the covenant God made with himself in Noah's day. We talked about that. God made a covenant with himself. I will not again destroy the earth with a flood. Now he's, God is making this covenant himself. God is saying, may I be like these animals if I do not keep my promise to you, Abram. God was saying, Abram, I'm guaranteeing your descendants will inherit this land on my life. But since God can, is God and cannot die, Abram could live out his days knowing God is going to fulfill his promise, just as he said. When he awoke from his sleep and the dream that God gave him, he said, though I cannot see it, I can trust and believe the promise of God because God made a covenant with me and it cannot be broken. As we wind up 
for this today's lesson, I want to fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. I want to join the disciples in the upper room with Jesus for the Last Supper. Verse 14 of Luke 22, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And listen closely. And likewise, the cup after they eat and saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant in my blood. God made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. Made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites. God made a covenant with you and me. God made a covenant. A new covenant. The book of Hebrews tells us it's a better covenant than all the other covenants. And it's the last covenant that will be made. In a few moments, we're going to partake of the emblems. You thought I forgot communion, but I didn't. Because it's all about the covenant. The covenant. As we hold those emblems this morning, I want you to reflect for a few moments the parallels of what God did with Abram. Abram's children, just like you and me, did not keep covenant. They were covenant breakers. So are you. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how is God able to bring salvation to us who should be like the animals that were severed and killed? God became one of us. God became one of us. The God who created everything. The God who existed forever. The God, the Scripture said, the heavens cannot contain his spirit because God is spirit. He's not a body. Yet he took the form of a man. When I say took the form of a man, not just appearing like he did in the Old Testament of theophany, he actually became an embryo in the womb of a young virgin woman named Mary. Born just like you and I are. Jesus lived as a man under the old covenant, and he did it perfectly. He lived as a man under the old covenant, the old covenant that makes, shows us that we're not perfect, that we're sinners. He did not sin, 
Though tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived in obedience to the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He lived in dependence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus became the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. When he was 30 years old, John the Baptist introduced him to a group of people at the Jordan River. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Revelation, John says in the vision that he saw this one like a lamb who had been slaughtered. In that last supper, Jesus took the bread and broke it, said, this is my body which is given for you. Prophet Isaiah said to be beaten beyond recognition. And even as those animals were severed and bloodied, and Jesus was bloodied, scourged, flesh plowed from his back, crown of thorns on his head, nails through his hands and feet. Jesus was cursed in our place. Jesus was cursed in our place. Because we broke covenant with God, we should die. But God loved us so much that he said, I'll take your place. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You remember God said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And because Jesus came down through that line, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I wish I could somehow help us to comprehend a little bit of the magnitude of, of what Jesus did in cutting the new covenant. Who's the one who's supposed to die when they break the covenant? The covenant breaker. That was not Jesus. That was us. That God in his love, God in his grace said, you broke the covenant so I'm going to die in your place that you can be an heir of Abraham, that you can be an heir with Jesus Christ. Real quickly, five or six more notes. Because Jesus cut a new covenant, today we can be children of God. We can be children of God. You can look at those verses when you get home. John 1, 12, to as many as received him, he gave the power to be called the sons of God. Because Jesus Christ cut a new covenant, we can live forever. What's John 3, 16 say? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because Jesus cut a new covenant, we have a place in heaven. We have a place in heaven. John 14, Jesus said, if I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Because Jesus 
cut a new covenant. We are never alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you until the end of the age. Because Jesus cut a new covenant, all God's promises are ours. His promises in Christ are yea and amen. Yes, yes, depending on which translation you read in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Because Jesus Christ cut a new covenant, we can believe for miracles. John 15, 7 is just one of hundreds of verses. But if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done. But perhaps the greatest thing of all is because Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave. Today, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. I hope you picked up the communion emblem when you came in. In Matthew 26, Jesus, when he talked about the new covenant, he said, this blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins for many. So, Lord, as we take hold of this piece of bread today, we remember you made a covenant. You made a promise. You said that you were broken on our behalf. You were broken that we who are broken might be made whole. When you started your ministry, you read from Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, the year of Jubilee, because you were broken. We have wholeness today. And Lord, I thank you again that we can pray for healing of our bodies, healing of our emotions, even healing of our mind, and most importantly, healing of our spirit. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for your brokenness. Thank you for wholeness today. Shall we The emblem of Jesus' blood, there's nothing more important. Because he shed his blood, God's law said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, there's no forgiveness. If we shed our own blood, we're dead. But because Jesus shed his blood that was sinless, God is justified he may be able to give to us grace because Jesus paid it all. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that there is a way 
for us to have the slate wiped clean before you. To have our sins washed away by your precious blood. That's how we become your children. That's where we find peace that passes understanding. That's where we find a hope for eternity is in you. And Lord, as we hold this emblem today and those in the sound of my voice that the Holy Spirit is talking to that this is the day for them to say, Jesus, somehow I come to believe that you died for me. And I know that I have missed the mark that I have sinned, that I'm not perfect. But I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to come into my heart, to be the Lord of my life. Help me to know you. Help me to love you. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. So that when it's all said and done, I breathe my last here, I'll wake up in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you promised whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you that this blood is a sign of a covenant that cannot be broken. It will not be broken. You will return one day for those who accepted you as Lord and Savior and receive us unto yourself. And so shall we ever be with you. Thank you for that hope today. Shall we drink the cup? I'd like you to stand and sing one more song or sing one song we already sang today before we go. Who you say I am? Let's sing that one more time. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me. I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Whom the sun sets free. Oh, it's free. Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Whom the sun sets free. Oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a Child of God.
Yes, I am. Father, we are so thankful. So thankful for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that we are your children. You've given us a purpose for living. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us day by day as we walk with you in obedience. I pray your blessing upon each person here today, blessing upon our time of fellowship around the table in the gymnasium for the next hour. Thank you for all of these things you're doing for us today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Breakfast is ready. <laughs>